Hey guys, Andre Harrison back at it once again with a brand new episode of the Motorsport 101 podcast for you. Coming at to you live somewhere in a mediocre sounding London bedroom somewhere. <laughs> right, <laughs> it's been 17 episodes now. This is our 17th episode. This might be our last episode before I make a decision as to whether I want to keep this show going or not. Because, as I've always said, it's a uni assignment, not actually something I really wanted to do. Actually, take the back out. That's actually untrue. I did actually really want to do my own podcast series, <laughs> to be honest. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not even going to pretend like I'm joking about that. Um, so I've always wanted to do this. I've, had, I've done 17 episodes now, and basically my university deadline for said project is next weekend. Um, so between now and then, I've got to make a decision as to whether I want to keep this show going. Spoiler alert, I probably will, um, because, you know... King's around, he's, he's, he likes this kind of shit, unfortunately. <laughs> yes, I, I live for this. <laughs> <laughs> no introduction needed, King is in the house, of course. Um, just him on the, on this occasion. Um, I know people have been asking me, uh, Dre, have you, have you considered getting an athlete on? Um, the answer to that question is yes, I have, as a matter of fact. So um, there's a good possibility that's going to be a thing because I know he's out of university now if not very very soon and he's pretty much free all summer so this podcast could be getting even more American soon because you know that's what we all wanted right <laughs> you know indie car coverage uh, regular side panelist is American <laughs> <laughs> it all adds up we're taking over um, and I'm basically an honorary American myself I watch more American sport than most Americans do so <laughs> You know, as you do. But that's going to be a thing, too. So say hi, King, as well, by the way, in case you haven't already. Yeah, hey, I'm back again, guys. Can't get rid of him. He's, at this point, he's a part of the furniture. <laughs> I, I just deal with him at this point. But, yeah, it's another absolutely stacked episode of the, of the Motorsport 1 on podcast. Because also, we, we did not have a show last week, mostly for the reason of I was lazy. Um, but also because I also had a uni assignment to take care of as well. So, you know, it kind of just kind of got swept under the rug, really, thinking, well, F1's on a three-week break. MotoGP's not going to be on next weekend. You know, there's only going to be an IndyCar race. It probably won't hurt too bad if I don't act actually do an episode this week so i've got to put it off till now but yeah you're getting an episode tonight so hooray um so talking about this stacked episode of the podcast on this episode we'll be talking about force india a lot basically in the news force india is talking about the possibility of choosing their own tires we'll talk about that the possibility as well that came out today that they are kind of pushing for a cost-effective formula one and a angling for the possibility to bring back the V8 engines with Kurs to basically keep the costs down. We'll talk about why that won't work and all of that. Azerbaijan is unfortunately still a thing for many casual F1 fans as a potential replacement to the Italian Grand Prix because you know what Europe needed? Another Grand Prix. Um, even though Azerbaijan really isn't European. But, you know, they're in Eurovision, so I guess that counts, right? Um, so we'll be talking about that and the possibility of Monza getting replaced again. And uh, is it another Germany-like situation? We'll talk about that. Um, Sky Sports F1 and pushing their campaign for basically, or maybe not a campaign, but certainly an agenda about the possibility of moving F1 broadcasting times to later in the day. Claire Williams bringing this up on, wasn't it last Friday's episode of Ask Crofty, King? Yeah, exactly there. Uh, yeah, last week's, last week's Ask Crofty, which you should not have been watching because I was on Bike Live last week. If he was, shame on you. Oh. Like my director, Lester Forbes. God damn him! Um, 
but yeah, we'll talk about that as well. And and also Mick Schumacher getting his first Formula Four win and the positive as well as negative connotations that come alongside of that. Because let's be real here, we journalists are greedy bastards sometimes, and you know. We'll talk about the ethics regarding that. And, of course, apparently there was some motorsport a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, we'll talk about that too. Formula One in Bahrain and all the ins and outs of that. Hamilton winning yet another Grand Prix. Raikkonen, uh, Raikkonen's great ride to come back into, in, into second place. Rosberg's aggression and Renault going pop yet again. Um, we'll be talking about MotoGP in Argentina where there's yet more tyre wear discussion worth talking over as Mark Marquez's back tyre decides to say hello to severe of degradation and Valentino Rossi winning yet another race. Can we stop admitting this is no longer a surprise and just accept the fact he's a title contender now? Hooray! Um, Crutchlow still on the podium. We'll be talking about Moto2 and Johan Zarco getting his first Moto2 victory, as well as um, Sam Lowe's letting Alex Rins through, which was also quite an interesting news point worth discussing. And Moto3, as Danny Kent somehow found a way to be even more dominant than last time at Cota, as well as Efren Vasquez, qualifying problems, and Alexis Masbu hitting the dirt again. And we'll be talking about some IndyCar, too. We had two Two races go by since our last show. We'll be talking about Long Beach, where Scott Dixon pulled off yet another victory at his first at Long Beach, um, as well as Connor Daly getting a ride, as well as being confirmed for the Indy 500. Hooray for the Motorsport 101's favourite driver, as well as Alabama this past weekend, as Joseph Newgarden, one of the bright young stars of IndyCar at the age of 24, got his very first IndyCar victory, as well as talking about Graham Rahal's comeback when Will Power deciding to be Will Power. All that and more on an absolutely loaded Motorsport 101 podcast. So, King, let's go over the news first real quick. And first up, we'll be t- um, Force India and uh, their camp has been very vocal about a lot of things to do with Formula One lately. Um, first up, they, they, they've, they've suggested we bypass Pirelli's own selections and basically let the teams themselves decide what tyres to bring to a Grand Prix event. Oh, I mean, yes, they, they've said that... that <laughs> It would be more exciting to race strategy if teams picked their tire selections for them. Basically, Forsenia kind of theorized that they could do this by picking their tire selections four weeks, four week, four weeks ahead of the Grand Prix and then not making it public until they arrive at the track on Thursday. Interesting. I mean. I guess that would make things a little bit more intriguing in terms of strategy, but I think it would, wouldn't it make it really hard to keep track of what's going on during a Grand Prix? Because we've had races in this era, like remember Spain a couple of years ago where teams were, were, were running anything between two and four stops? Yeah, and and Pirelli already designed, you know, the color bands and the tire to contrast with its with its opposite, usually one tire away from it. So you'd have to re, you'd have to retread the entire tire color system. And besides that, like you know from IGP, we already get free selection of tire compounds in there, and it usually only two of them actually work. Yeah, like how often would you get a Grand Prix where three different tires are viable? Getting two to be viable is a difficult stretch in itself, and that's only because in F1 we're obligated to run a harder and a softer compound tire during the Grand Prix of whatever color, <laughs> whatever color band that Pirelli deems appropriate. Um, so for me, it seems like yeah, sure, it seems like a fun idea, but at the same time, it also feels like one, it would make it more confusing for the casual viewer. Two, you know, I don't think there'll be much alterations in terms of tire choice anyway. And three, 
tyres are actually now coming towards the bottom of, pro- of the problems because, you know, Pirelli always seemed to be in the middle of a tug of war between the teams and the fans as to what kind of tyre to make anyway, and this would not help. Yeah, and considering Pirelli would have to design so many more compounds because, believe it or not, the hard compounds, like any compounds they use at each circuit, are not the same. Hards at one track are not the same as hards at another track. Yeah, they're, they're begging specifically for tr- for every track at every different race weekend, right? Yes, that's why they destroy them when any time... That's why they destroy the tires when the race are done, because they're useless afterwards. Exactly. So, yeah, basically, you know, you've already got two different... Well, basically four different compounds being made for every track because of the fact that obviously you've got to bring tires for a wet weekend just in case, yes. even if it's Bahrain, which is... Which, which, which I think has seen about 15 days of rain in the last 15 years. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> essentially, yeah, you've got to bring them along, I suppose. Um, and making four different tyre compounds per race weekend is already probably, I'm guessing, a strain on Peretti, let alone having to make another two batches just in case some team is hipster enough to think, you know what, I'm going to bring super softs to Malaysia and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would be... Yes, it's it's an interesting concept, but you would have to find a way to actually balance it so that each so that each of them would be about the same if you worked it out. Yeah, so a bit of a mess, really, more than anything else. But you know, I like the idea. I mean, I love your idea, which you put forward during um, Bahrain's race weekend last week, where you basically mentioned about the possibility of a ultra soft qualifying tire. Oh yeah. So talk that over a little bit if you like. Yeah, basically have a special qualifying tire that each team gets two sets of, basically one to use, you know, try out and practice and one to actually use in qualifying. And basically kind of harken back to the qualifying tires of the eighties where they're basically three lap specials, out lap, flying lap, in lap, and anything after that they pretty much are nothing. And I don't know, I kind of colloquially call them just like purples. Yeah, purples, because, you know, we, we need another hipster colour. We need one for every colour of the rainbow in Formula 1 these days, so let's have a purple one, because why not? Because fast um, <laughs> Yeah, fair. Imagine the Fox's lap colour. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, we'll go with that. Um, I like that idea a lot, actually, because it, 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 would, it would certainly make things a bit more interesting to try and... It would certainly make qualifying more interesting, especially given how you can kind of roughly guess the pattern of Q3 most race weekends before it's even started. And you might see more midfield teams rolling the dice by using their qualifying tyre to try and get into another session. Like, for example, you could see maybe something like a McLaren in today's field using their qualifying tyre in Q1 to try and get into Q2 and take a guaranteed top 16 or whatever whoever it would be, yeah. basically. Or, or a team like maybe Force India using their qualifiers in Q2 to guarantee a top 10 in Q3. Something like that, more than likely. It, it's basically the atomic option. It's basically everyone has the choice to whip out the big guns. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, MotoGP had this, had a very similar rule a few years ago before, well, um, they changed the rules around again and before I think it was Bridgestone became a major manufacturer again. They had two sets of super sticky qualifying tyres that would definitely fade after one and a half laps, maybe. So you might just get two laps out of a qualifying tire, but most likely, most of the time you wouldn't. Most of the time it was a one lap burst on a super sticky, but obviously super high wear rate 
soft tyre, basically, that you would put on during the last 10 minutes of a qualifying session, and that's when the real times would come through. It's obviously it's a little bit more tactical than that, because you've only got, obviously, the one set in your example, but it, it has been done before. Um, well, obviously, because everybody had a pair, and everyone was kind of in one big qualifying session back then, you know, it didn't really have an effect on the results. But now, given that qualifying's a two-tiered format, with qualifying one and qualifying two, you know, being a thing, you know, that could actually work. And I, I think that would be a really good idea. I, I, I think that was actually, I think that's something that would uh, actually mix things up a little bit. Yeah. Because, you know, the top six to eight runners in a, in a Formula One qualifying session are kind of predictable these days, especially net, given now that the top four teams are really spread out when it comes to pace at the moment, with Merckx and Ferrari clearly at the top. You know, you've got Williams, which are kind of a way back in third, and they're they're quite a way ahead of Red Bull, who are the fourth best team at the moment, really on paper. So maybe that. And considering that, let's be honest here, qualifying should be a bit of a made-for-TV thing because it's perfectly designed for television. Qualifying is only an hour long, and it's split into three segments. It's every something should be happening in each qualifying session because there's no reason not to. Exactly. Qualifying run and two. Well, qualifying one especially is redundant pretty much these days. Um, you know, like, again, only, especially given that we have two cars which will definitely not get out of Q1, which is the Manners. And there's a strong chance that McLaren will be in that elimination zone as well. So, you know, Q1's already kind of pointless as it is. Um, but, you know, that's another format for another day. Um, moving on, they also mentioned uh, the possibility of, of Force India trying to push for a, a a dual formula, so to speak, where V6 hybrid engines and V8s run together, King. Uh, I, I find that interesting, and I I, I like the concept, but the thing is, I don't think, like, yes, Force India may be saying that this is a good idea, but I don't think Force India would actually do it. I think the only team in the field right now that would do it would be Manor. Yeah, more unlikely, because, I mean, I know you mentioned that we're with, with the right parity in the rules that the V8s could be as fast as the V6s, but that's been one of the most noticeable things about the V6 era. The cars are definitely faster in a straight line again. Yeah, they're definitely faster, but it wouldn't obviously they just wouldn't take old V8s off the shelf. They would redesign them to be, you know, to, for the, yeah, more powerful. So there would be some parity there. But I, the only reason why you'd run a V8, number one, it's cheaper. Number two, it's way more reliable. Exactly, and you know, I know reliability is is a valuable trait. But let's be real here. F1 is all about gambling, and like in F1, no team gets by via playing it safe, really, do they? Yeah, no team gets. And does anybody want? Does anybody want to be a tier two Formula One team running V8s anyway, if they can avoid it? <laughs> I mean, uh, you would avoid it. Like it depends on how the V8s would actually be, because I have a feeling they would be just as fast when they when they tune them up for it. But. <laughs> It's more. Nobody wants to be. Nobody wants to be that guy to go in first and it not work. Yeah, no one wants to be the McLaren of the situation. 
Yeah, well, they'll they'll eat the early pain and hope the development down the road will will kick will kick back and make up the lost ground. And obviously, we get to see that with Honda. And apparently, there's a big update due for Spain. Their drivers are very confident. Obviously, Alonso and and Button are very confident that they'll improve for the Spanish Grand Prix next weekend. But uh, we'll have to wait and see where that one goes. But you know, just, could you could you see a dual formula like that working, King? Uh, I could see. It. I mean, I could see it working because I. I... I've always been a big proponent of having an open formula, and this is kind of the first step in that direction, to have a low-cost way for not only the teams on the grid to survive, but have new teams come in using this low-cost V8 formula. Yeah, but again, I think the bigger teams would would veto it, wouldn't they? There's no way they'd let that happen, would they? No, because if Formula 1's more affordable, that's less money for them. Exactly, because given the nature of Formula 1, because of the high amounts of spending, Bernie has to open his pocket a little bit more with more cash to subsidise the cost. If F1 is is cheaper, essentially Bernie doesn't have to get his pocket out as much, and the teams kind of want that little extra pay packet to keep themselves safe from spending a quarter billion every year on development. Yeah, like, before Australia, even this year, he bailed out the bottom three teams that were remaining in the field after Manor left. Exactly, and people forget that because Bernie is the Antichrist when it comes to Formula One. Remember, <laughs> um, but essentially, yeah, that's a thing. And, and you know, yeah, the Bernie is bailing the young, the smaller teams out. He is paying for stuff. He is trying to make the sport cheap. So he, he doesn't have to open his wallet quite so much. So you know, his intentions aren't quite as squeaky clean as he'd like. But it's, but you have to say, given that the cost issues are what is, is probably F one's biggest issue in general right now. You can't say it's not a bad thing, really. Yeah, there, there are certainly pros and cons to each side, there, but there certainly isn't a right or a wrong. It's just a big gray area. It's a big gray area, and of course, because of the democratic nature of Formula One, nothing's ever going to get resolved. If anything, the buzz topic last week during Bahrain was, oh, we're going for a thousand brake horsepower hybrids instead by increasing the fuel flow rate. So what's the odds of there being an actual open formula anytime soon? Uh not likely. Like, it seems the only issues that ever get resolved in Formula 1 are the black and white issues where it's kind of it's kind of frowned upon to be on the wrong side of that issue. Exactly. So, you know, if, if, you're, if, 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 you're, if you're Force India, it's kind of in your best interest to try and flag up the possibility of making the sport cheap because obviously it suits you. You know, it's, 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 as you say, rational choice theory all over again. Of course you're trying to make the sport cheap. That means, that means you'd automatically be more competitive. Um, yeah. Like, the thing is, everyone's like, they should do this, they should do this. They're like, yes, Force India wants to do this, but they're not the people you're trying to convince. You're trying to convince Maurizio Riva Bene, Kristen Horner, and Toto Wolf to agree to this. And, of course, they're never going to do that now, are they? No. This is not a chance, not a chance in hell, especially because, hey, that means, they'd put, they, that means they'd risk their chances of winning. And, of course, they're not going to do that, given how good they've been so far this season. Well, maybe not so much in the case of Christian Horner, but still. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, you know, it's a nice idea, Force India. I like the idea of an open formula overall, but it's just never going to happen, so. Yeah, no, no one wants to be in a series where some 24-year-old kid in a small team could just come back and just destroy your super team. Exactly. Take note. See Vettel, Sebastian, for more information. <laughs> I was making more of a reference to Joseph Newgarden, but... 
That's it. That works too. <laughs> we'll get to that later. Um, so yeah, going on in the news as well, we're also going to talk about now um, Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is like the hernia on the F1 calendar. It's not going away, and, it's, and it probably will be a fully-fledged Grand Prix either next year or the year after, most likely next season, because it's it's pretty much good to go. It's a street circuit in, 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 you know, in it by nature, so it wouldn't take much to turn it into a GP facility. Um, so... What's got the what's got the fans goats here is that it might replace Monza. And I'm like, really fans, is that the number one thing that comes to mind when racing in Azerbaijan? Yeah, like seriously, with that with that complaining like when was the last time we had a decent Italian Grand Prix? Uh two thousand eight. And even that's an overrated Grand Prix. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that you're saying it's overrated says everything. <laughs> exactly. Like I've seen that race three times. It's not that good. <laughs> like, like you'd, obviously because of Raikkonen and Hamilton being further back down the grid, you'd think it would have Pippa to be quite interesting. It's not a Japan 05 in that regard where Alonso and Raikkonen went on a tear to try and win the Grand Prix. They didn't make that much progress. <laughs> like, Vettel was just that fast and it was just not that good a Grand Prix. And this is coming from me, the internet Sebastian Vettel fan. So what does that tell you about Italy as a Grand Prix? It's a glorified oval. I've said this time and time again. Like, if you want a proper Italian Grand Prix, go to Mugello. <laughs> it's a much better track. Or, or <laughs> bring the banking back, please. <laughs> or bringing the banking back, at least that way we'll have a little bit of drama. <laughs> as as cars are 45 degrees sideways off a banking, like IndyCar or something. Um, but yeah, like so there's a possibility. And you know you know what fans are like when it comes to these things. Because it's a nostalgic track, because it's you know a staple part of the European calendar, everyone's up in arms of the possibility of losing Monza. But fail to realise, Monza struggles to be able to afford their Grand Prix every year. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I like, before we started the show, I told you I was working on an article about this, but basically, sports do need their iconic venues. Like, it's it's an easy way to conjure up memories of the past, which is a good thing. That's That's why when, you know, the FA decided to build a new national stadium, they decided they'd still call it Wembley. <laughs> exactly, and that and that's the point, you know. It's, it's one of those situations, yeah, I know you need your staple calendars, but how much of a financial pass do you want to keep giving to places like this that can't afford it? Like, it it, it shouldn't be the priority of, 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 the, of, of Formula One to bail out these old tracks just because they're old tracks. That pisses off the new guys, too, because the new guys are going to be, are going to be thinking... Well, why are we paying full price for our Grand Prix if if these guys are getting a financial pass? Where's our pass? Well, the, I, that's the thing, though. They've paid for their past. I mean, they they paid for their past because of their past. They've been around decades before Formula One was a thing, and the only reason they ended up in this financial situation was because of Formula One. Exactly, and. You know, Formula One. Is, is, it, is, it, is this a case of the older guys biting the hand that feeds them? Uh, it seems like Formula One became so popular that people wanted Formula One in their countries, and they were. It was mainly these governments wanting to spend so much money to get Formula One to come here, inevitably, inevitably driving up the prices to ho- to host Grand Prix to the point where they were pricing out Europe. 
Exactly, because you know, due to the nature of inflation and just periods over time, essentially, you know, you look at it and you think, well, some tough tracks are gonna are gonna get lost in the shuffle because of the nature of inflation, the nature of the sport becoming more popular. I mean, we're now a sport that's watched by half a billion worldwide. Naturally, it's gonna be more expensive because as a business, you want to make more money, yeah. and. If if you're a track like in Azerbaijan or a Valencia, for instance, or in a more mother obscure place like a Korea used to be, and you're offering big money to have the honor of hosting a Grand Prix, why wouldn't you take that if you're Bernie Eccleston? Yeah, but I mean, of course you're gonna say yes, but like, imagine if like <laughs> the fact that there hasn't been a French Grand Prix since 2008, which is the home of motor racing, says a lot. Like, imagine if if England said we're no longer gonna play at Lords anymore. Yeah, people would be pissed. <laughs> and and the thing is, other series do things to preserve their historic venues, like the the way the revenue split in NASCAR says a lot, considering that NASCAR itself only gets yeah NASCAR itself only gets ten percent, while the teams get twenty five percent and the tracks get sixty five percent. Wow, so NASCAR really does go out of its way to protect to protect the little guy, and in that case, that's the track promoters. Yeah. Uh, well, that, I, did, I did not know that. That's very interesting. So, are you saying that F1 should do more to preserve its more historic venues? Yeah, because right now, out of form, out of like the Formula One revenue split, the track owners get zero percent. Ouch. Yeah. No wonder. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's kind of a problem. But so you know. We could talk about revenue splitting all day in Formula 1 because we all know it's fundamentally screwed when it comes to that department um, in terms of the teams and in, obviously in this case the promoters too um, as well. So speaking of promotion, Sky Sports F1 has recently um, pushed out a debate idea to make Formula 1 races show maybe three hours later in the afternoon, I think a 4pm time was what Claire Williams suggested. Um, on last Friday's Ask Crofty um, on Sky Sports F1. She was suggesting that her races be later in the afternoon to accommodate more fans to watch. And um, there's been a big debate about this on Sky Sports F1's Twitter page. A lot of people have been chiming in their opinions on this one. King, what do you make of this one? I'd say it's good. I, I, I wrote an article that I took down last year about how Formula One should try to transition to this and it kind of I don't remember if I brought up NASCAR, but I'm kind of sure I didn't bring up NASCAR, but maybe Formula One could pay these circuits to put up floodlights and make most of the races twilight races, so even past 4 p.m., maybe even start at 6. Yeah, oh, or even later, yeah. I mean, for me, I think there's obviously a lot of Brits follow Sky Sports F1's page, so naturally they, I think most of them were quite abrasive to the idea. For, for many reasons, I think the, one of the biggest ones I saw was the fact that it will clash with Premier League football. And my response to that is, well, Premier League football mostly, especially on a Sunday, which is their prime time games, you know, the, the big games tend to be on Sunday afternoon at the four o'clock slot. Well, there's a reason they showed them there. And the reason why that is, is because they can be broadcast around the world. People forget that. You know, America is big on its soccer now these days. You know, they're, they are producing more soccer than they've ever before. They've got proper coverage for it now. Places like NBC, TSN in, in Canada, for example. They have, you know, pundits over there. They have full programs, broadcasts, highlights, all that kind of thing. And 4 p.m. is a much more convenient time slot to those guys, too. 
And that's a big audience that, that the Premier League is potentially yeah. shunning if they weren't at that kind of time slot. Because I don't is the is the Sunday afternoon game on on free to air television? Well, I, I mean, it's on free to air television in the United States. That's how big it's become. I, I know it is in Canada as well because of TSN. Yeah. So essentially, there's a reason Premier the Premier League has games in that kind of time because if they did them like they normally do, which would be three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, or even the earlier games like twelve thirty, which there's a lot of twelve thirty games in the Premier League, for example, the Americans would be would be completely zoned out of that because no American is going. Only the real hardcores are going to get up like in the middle of the morning, like four five a.m. to watch these kind to watch, to watch a game of football. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, the thing um, is, people kind of tend to forget it's not just the americans in this situation it's the americans the canadians the mexicans the argentine the argentines and with much more hardcore football fan bases and too. the brazilians the brazilians and that's a huge deal because we all know brazil's football is a religion to those guys down there yeah. so you know it's that kind of nature and Formula One is very European biased when it comes to its time. It basically aims around 1 p.m. Central European time. And that's, that's the pattern it's always been, unless it's a night race like Bahrain, like Singapore, uh, etc. Even though um, Singapore is a night race because of Europe. Yeah, it's a, exactly. It's a European race because of Europe, so it's obviously more convenient. It obviously, it looks nice at night, and it's, it's friendly for the European time slot. So why not? Basically, only ones, the only time of the, Euro, the Europeans are on a little bit later is races like Bahrain, which is close but still a night race, Abu Dhabi, which is a twilight race, and any time they're in North America, North or South America, so Brazil. You know, Circuit of the Americas, Canada. That's a little bit later on as well in the afternoon, but on the whole. Yeah, it's a European thing. So are we being a little bit self-centered here as fans? Yeah, considering that most of most of Brazil has to get up around like 9 in the morning to watch Formula 1. And Brazil is Formula 1's largest television audience by far. Like the only country that compares close to it is China. And that's only because of how large their population is. Exactly. So... You know, I know it's it's a it's a it's a European thing, uh, mostly. But I, f I mean, a lot of F1 fans, especially in Europe, are hardcores, and I don't think people are going to complain too much if if a race in Europe is showing at four in the afternoon, especially as we live in an era where catch-up TV DVRs are a thing. And I mean, I, I, I watch more stuff on my DVR than I watch live television these days. I, so I mean. I, uh Sports, sports is the last bastion of live television. Most sport is consumed live. It's exactly unless you're so. a diehard fan, you're not watching. You're 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 not watching it on a DVR. Exactly. So essentially, I mean, I think I I don't think there'll be a drop off in European fans at all if races are at four instead of one. It'll be very very. No, no, nominal. I think it would go up. Because it's close. I think yeah, it's close to the prime time. You don't have to, like as Claire said, you don't have to give up your entire day to watch Formula One. You just come home in the afternoon and watch it. Yeah, come home from work at five. There's F1 on your TV screen. So yeah, it's a very good point. You know, more, more, yeah, more worker level convenient as well in that regard by, by being at four instead of being on at the lunchtime slot, like, which you know like, is not ideal. Like the only legitimate argument I've ever that I've seen so far against it is. The people at the races were like, oh, how am I supposed to get home on Sunday night for Monday with work the next morning? I'm like, and I'm just looking at NASCAR, almost the entire, almost, I would probably say like 
half to a third of NASCAR races are all night races on Sunday nights. So, yeah, they've already taken that into account before making their plan, so there's no reason why we couldn't do the same. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I I personally, I agree. I'm, I'm, with, I'm with Claire on this one. I'd be more than happy with a 4 p.m. start. I don't really mind in this case because... I've got I've got nothing going on at home these days anyway, so screw it. One one, 1 p.m. 4 p.m. makes a difference to me really. I, I would, the only thing that be a, it, it would piss off Dorna because it would be it would be more clashes with MotoGP in that regard. But I don't think they, they really care about that too much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, personally, I would love it because I don't have to wake up at seven in the morning to watch Formula One. Blasted American biased, <laughs> you pig. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I can totally see the logic in that. So yeah. I'm all for it. Keep pushing the campaign, Claire. We like you around here. Um, especially with King's case. Wow. Um, <laughs> don't even try to deny this. Uh, final bit of news before we, before we move on to the actual you know, coverage of what Macy's we've missed and whatnot. Mick Schumacher, son of the great Michael, of course, got his very first Formula 4 race win at the, at, at, during the uh, season opening weekend, King. Yeah, he he got his first victory in race three of the Adiasi Formula Four series. Yay! So you know, congratulations to Mick. I'm sure I'm sure Dad Michael Senior will be very proud of him. Uh, obviously, you know, a nice moment for motorsport fans. We could all get together and you know celebrate a second generation Schumacher getting a win. Um, even if it's also a little bit of a shame that so many companies or so many entities and journalism corporations and whatnot jumped on the bandwagon to rep- report this coverage, even if they would never cover Formula Four normally. Yeah, Formula Four in another country. <laughs> Yeah, Formula 4 in Germany. Like We all know they're only mentioning this because it, it's Mick Schumacher that's won. And, you know, naturally there's a lot of second-generation guys in, in, out there, you know, racing. Hell, we've got one in Formula 1 right now, and Carlos Sainz up at the end of the day. So, oh, we, you know, we, Carlos Sainz, like Carlos Sainz, Max Verstappen, Nico Rosberg. Yep, there's a lot. There's, there's more than there's more second generation guys than we realize um, in the first place. And you know, let's be real of each other here. Mix only getting this coverage because of the fact that obviously you know we've 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 hyped this up basically, and and you know obviously because obviously being son of Michael, and of course a lot of entities are going to cash in that sky who never do Formula Four posts of any kind. They only ever do GP two and three, and even that's a, yeah, that's a, a minor rare. thing. Even that's a rare thing, and they broadcast a darn thing on television. Um, even they rarely mention GP2 or 3, let alone Formula 4, which is way down the ladder, essentially. And again, it's, is, is it a lot of, it's a, it's a lot of cheap, you know, cheap views in the sense of, um, cashing on, on his son, his surname, is it not? Yeah, to be honest, based on the coverage, you would swear that only, only two drivers were in Formula Four Adiasi, and that and that was like that's Mick and and Harrison Newey. Oh, I wonder who that is. <laughs> Good name though. Yeah. Um, but but um, yeah, essentially that's the that's the that's the long and short of it. Really, obviously, congrats to Mick. Um, obviously, again, nothing's taken away from Mick. This is it's, it's a nice moment for Mick, obviously, and you know, first open wheeled weekend gets a win. I know a lot of fans are still very emotional and very caring about Michael's current condition. Of course, we continue to wish him well. Um, so naturally, it's kind of it was always going to be inevitable that they were going to pick up on that because it's it's easy views and it's easy money for these corporations to talk about. Oh, you know, let's, let's get a mix. Let's get a mix. Schumacher story out there because you know it's 
it's simple enough, you know? It's simple, and you get to mention Michael Schumacher. Exactly. So, you know, hooray. So, you know, yeah, congrats to Mick. Not, nothing taken away from his moment. I know Mick was very insistent in saying, you know, this, is, this, is, this, is, this, isn't, this isn't about my dad. It's about me, and that's great. You know, I, I, I love the kid's attitude. It's just... The media doesn't quite work that way, unfortunately. Yeah, it's it's all about getting the views. Get those views and make that money, son. Um, so yeah, that's enough of the news for this for this episode. Let's move on to recapping some races that we've all missed, and there's a lot of them. So you know, stick around, and get the coffee on because this could take a while. Um, for, obviously, last week we had Formula One's round four. Was it four of their championship? Yeah, round four of the F1 championship in Bahrain, and surprise, surprise. Lewis Hamilton got another win. Um, his third win of the season already. Um, very comfortable win for Hamilton until the final lap where they had the break by wire fault um, at the end. But Raikkonen was too far away to do anything about it, really. Um, but yeah, just a, a great result for, for Lewis Hamilton again. Never really under any real, re- real pressure all race long, King. Yeah, he basically led it from start to finish. There was... Well, albeit during the shuffling and the pit stops, he wasn't in the lead. He was pretty much in full control of the Grand Prix. No threats whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. Just like, in, you know, Sky F1 made a very good point in this one, which is rare for Sky F1. They made a very good point about Hamilton seems to have learned how to win boring. Um, and, you know, and winning while being complete control and managing his pace. He's done that for two straight races now where he's done a, just done an excellent job of doing just enough. Um, to get by, it's, it's, it's the old, it's the old, it's the old Fangio mantra of you always want to try and win as slowly as possible, and he's done that every time. So far, he's in Rosberg's not had an answer for him all season long. So far, um, even the race where where Rosberg didn't win or when Hamilton didn't win in Malaysia, it's Rosberg's played second fiddle all the way through, and um, it's looking ominous for this season by the, by the looks of it, King. Yeah, it's looking ominous. It's not looking good for Nico Rosberg. It's, it's not looking good for anybody because throughout the entire Grand Prix, the only person that actually had the pace that was even faster at any point than Lewis Hamilton was Kimi Raikkonen of all people. Ah, Raikkonen, back from the dead, um, basically. And, you know, it's, it's a nice reminder to tell you that Kimi Raikkonen is still pretty darn good at being a racing driver. I know you would never have believed it if you watched last season, but then again, I think it's, I think this season so far has already kind of proved that who that 2014 Ferrari was built for uh, more than anything else. Um, and if anything, Mauricio Arabeni admitted a couple of days ago that they built the 2015 Ferrari based on Kimi Raikkonen's driving style, believe wow. it or not. Yeah, he admitted that in an interview the other day, saying that they built it for Raikkonen, which makes Vettel's early pace all the more surprising, given that the car was built for Kimi, believe it or not, and based on his driving style. But, you know, it came to fruition this race, and, you know, everything went right for Raikkonen, really. Um, you know, went longer on his tyres. I think they went too long on that second stint when he was on the when he was on the mediums. He was losing too much time, and that may have cost him a shot at the win, because I think they went two or three laps too long on those mediums, especially given they went 17 on the options and without much of a problem. But, uh, yeah, still a great drive from Kimi Raikkonen, and a nice reminder that he is still really good at this whole racing thing. (laughs) He is just sitting around, cashing checks, sipping vodka, and eating ice cream. Yeah, like, who would have thought Raikkonen still actually quite good at this thing? (laughs) Um... So yeah, a great second place for Raikkonen, his first podium for Ferrari since 2009. Um, 
Um, and, it, and basically his first podium in general for 27 races. His last podium was Korea 2013, where he was too busy trying to barge Grosjean off the road in that in that Korean race. But uh, yeah, it's been a long time coming, nearly two full seasons since Raikkonen's last podium. Um, so not, uh, a nice result for Raikkonen. Rosberg in third, and boy, did he turn up the wick against Sebastian Vettel. It was, like, it was, it was a battle of Ros- the two Germans as Rosberg and Vettel went to war a couple of times. Mainly because Ferrari kept getting ahead on the undercut, King. Yeah, they kept getting ahead on the undercut, but Rosberg kept coming back and overtaking them. Yeah, I've never seen such aggression from Nico Rosberg when it comes to passing a guy. <laughs> it's uh, like, what a nice surprise. I mean, it, it, it was great. It, it, it kind of it did shut up a few of the, the Rosberg has, has had it critics out there, but... It's great to see him be racy, but he still needs to beat Lewis. Yeah, yeah, it's not enough. And, you know, you've you got to beat your teammate. That's one of the biggest mantras F1 fans have got these days, and, and you know, journalists in the media in general. Got to beat your teammate. That's always the, that's always been the thing. So for uh, for Rosberg to, to, you know, to battle with Vettel, who had quite a scruffy race by his standards in general, making a couple of mistakes here and there, rather than breaking his front wing... Um, on the final corner when trying to defend from said Rosberg um, to cause him to finish behind, in, in fifth behind Valtteri Bottas's Williams after being unable to pass him. Just, just a scrappy day at the office in general for Sebastian. And, you know, his first real scrappy race since he joined Ferrari. I mean, everything's been coming up roses for him so far this season. So, you know, a, a mediocre showing from Seb, but I don't, think, I don't think he was too mad about the situation. I think he just said, you know, well... My mistake cost me one place. We've got to do better next time, basically. And apparently, he stayed at the track till midnight, oh. analyzing, analyzing the data of the car and analyzing everything that went wrong. So, anyone that wants to question Sebastian Vettel's work ethic, there you go. Um, the guy is really knuckling down as hard as he possibly can to make this team work. Um, and you know, it really is right now. I mean, we've mentioned before in this podcast time and again about how. The, the the morale in the Ferrari camp is higher than it's ever been. Um, it's, it's like Schumacher's back in the seat again, basically. And and it's, even when the team aren't winning, they're still optimistic, and you know they feel like they can really go after Mercedes now, and that's refreshing to see. King. Yeah, like considering considering Williams and and how they're basically the third place team, no lower, no higher, Quite a long way. Yeah, Ferrari seem like extremely competitive. Compared to where Williams was last year, they've seen them just nudge their way up, and they're really nipping at Mercedes' heels. That maybe by Belgium or Italy, Mercedes could have an actual fight on their hands. Yeah, I mean, Mercs. I don't know if they've, if they've been catfishing this time because they always seem to hype up the threat of Ferrari on Twitter all weekend long, and Toto was very com- was was very you know respectful to Ferrari and gave him a lot of credit for their speed and we you know where they were at. And Vettel's qualifying lap was insane to get on the front row like that and was within three tenths. I mean, besides the freak incident of a straight of Austria last season, no one's gotten that close to a Merckx in, in the dry over one lap yet. No, and. <laughs> It's surprise. I mean, it's surprising and also unsurprising that this race we saw the first Mercedes issue we've had all season. Because when they're when a Mercedes is pushed, that's when we get to see the car be unreliable, and they had their first brake by wire failure this season. 
Yeah, that was the first Merck's reliability problem we've had all year. Luckily, it didn't co- only cost them the one spot with Rosberg being unable to defend second from Riker and right at the end of the penultimate lap, I think it was. Yeah. Where Rosberg's brake by wire just failed right at the end and we went straight on at turn one. Um, so it only cost them three points this time. Yeah, this but time. If, Fer- if Ferrari keep pushing them, and you know, Mercs did have their problems last year, even when they weren't pushed, let alone now. I mean, we had things like the gearbox failure for Rosberg, the steering issue they had in Singapore, the brake-by-wire issues they had um, for, for Hamilton in Canada, not to mention the MGSU failure that they both had. So Mercs have had their problems. Yes, they've had their problems. Their car is no by no means reliable. The thing is that their car is so quick that they could just tune it down and just cruise. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, when they've, when they've run at 70%, when they've taken convincing wins, of course they're not going to have any major problems. Um, now, on the other hand, well, <laughs> you know, if they're pushed and they have to take risks, that's, that's what Toto admitted they did. They took a gamble. They said, essentially, yeah, we gambled our... We gambled reliability on the brakes for performance, and it showed, because if that race was two laps longer, then who knows what could have happened. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm i always on the fence when it comes to two laps longer. No, they they knew how long the race was. They, they, strategy is designed around the length of the race. This is true. This is true. That's a good point. That's a good point. But uh, yeah, that, that's that's going to be a thing. Um, so you know, maybe maybe more pushing. We'll see them. We'll see more maybe chinks in the Mercedes armor coming out over the course. You've already seen one with with their extreme tire degradation in the heat, and you know we've it's now shown that if if it's hot, Ferrari are going to be a threat. And you know, again, Merck's had a lot had, had a lot of respect for Ferrari's race pace this last weekend, and it showed that. Ferrari are are knocking on the door. They're maybe only a tenth a lap down on where they on, on being right up there. I would say. Um, so Ferrari look continuing to look very impressive at the moment, and maybe not a consistent threat yet, but they're getting there. If, I mean, uh, everybody thought the tire cooling would be an issue. Raikkonen was four was less than four seconds off the win. So it's looking like if Ferrari can gamble on strategy more often, they can steal they can steal a win or two by the looks of it. Yeah, they they were aiming for two or three wins this season. It seems like they already got one. They can get the other one. I'm I'm to be honest, I'm fairly confident that they can get at least two more. Hmm, I'm not as, I'm not as strong on this one as, as as you are, but I mean, if they can get one, there's no reason why they can't get another couple like Daniel Ricciardo did last year when taking direct advantage of Mercedes fuckery, basically. <laughs> like 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 in Belgium or like Canada or even like Hungary where they strategically they got it so badly wrong. Um, so, you know, it's one of those situations where Mercs have been shown to crack under pressure and, you know, maybe that'll open the door for somebody else down the road. But more on that, obviously, later in the season. Oh, obviously, as well, how about Renault? Oh, <laughs> they went pop. They went pop again, but they just about got away with it because Daniel Ricciardo had an engine failure literally in the final 200 yards of the race. <laughs> yeah, pretty... Most of the Renault-powered cars had massive issues, and luckily, Daniel Ricciardo was able to get his car over the line before anything happened. Nursed it home, literally with yards to spare. If the if the, if the finish line was down by the end of the pit straight, Ricardo would not have made it, <laughs> and that would have been heartbreaking for the Red Bull team. Given that Kvyat also had a pretty good day at the office, coming up from seventeenth to finishing the points in ninth, um, and both Toro Rosso's DNFing. So 
basically only there was only one working car that crossed the line um, for the Renault powered cars, and that was Daniel Kvyat's, um come back into the points. But yeah, I mean, Ricardo is already going to be on the limit with his fourth engine coming into the car for Spain. Yep, and with the FIA veto of five engines this year, Ricardo is on his last. Yep, the FIA vetoed the, the change of the rules to allowing five engines for the season, so yeah, vetoed. So Ricardo is on his last power unit, and it's round five. Um, so Ricardo's going to take at least a couple of engine penalties over the course of the season, probably three or four, I, w- I would say, right? Yeah, definitely, unless they're able to... It's like, it's, it's either he's going to take a whole lot of penalties or look completely uncompetitive out there. Yep, exactly. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a good sign for Renault at all. Ricardo's already on his fourth unit. And who, who, who the thought the breakout star of 2014 is already looking completely crippled for the season, given his team's unreliable, not particularly fast car. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? As Martin Brundle said about Sebastian Vettel, isn't it amazing how things change in a year? Yeah, it's an amazing breakout driver one year. Now, <laughs> struggling to even finish Grand Prix. Yeah, looking completely mediocre and, you know, has been beaten by the sister team on numerous occasions. Um, it's not a good look. Um, so, yeah, more on the Daniel Ricciardo hype train slowly coming off the rails, so to speak. Um, oh, yeah, so, yeah, that's all the majors I talk about from Bahrain. The midfield was kind of fun in that sense. We, we had Hulkenberg up there and then fell down the order because of his bad tyres. Perez uh, was in the points in the end. Alonso had a, had a gutsy performance in 11th in the end. Massa had to deal with a damaged car because he got hit by Maldonado again um, at the rear. So he had, a, he had a car that was damaged in terms of downforce. So he ended up limping to 10th. Which actually isn't too bad a damage limitation job by Williams, given given the damaged car, um, and whatnot as well. And Kvyat got in the points as well. And hey, we had, we even had Jensen Button live tweet the Grand Prix from the safety of his hotel <laughs> after McLaren, the second McLaren, had engine gremlins, electrical gremlins, the entire weekend. Yeah, I had problems the entire weekend. Did did Jensen Button even record a lap time this weekend? Barely. Um, jeez. Um, I mean, he, he, he only got about two laps in in qualifying. Um, he had a, we had two practice failures, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so yeah, did it, did that car even do 30 laps of running the whole weekend? No. Probably not even 20. Like, it, it may have barely got up, got, got past a dozen. Um, yeah, just a, not very nice day at the office for Jensen Button there, poor fella. Um, Jensen deserves better, and obviously it's even worse when Alonso's car was working perfectly and even finished just one place out of the points. Um, so it's, it's a double whammy in that regard, but uh, yeah, here's hoping that um, you know McLaren get back on their feet soon. I mean, like I said, the big update anticipated for Spain, as is Ferrari as well. They also said they've got. They've got a power unit upgrade coming for Spain, which would put them, and they, uh, and this is a quote, very close to Merck's level of power. Well, it depends on what Mercedes is bringing to Spain. If anything, yeah, I've not heard anything about that, but um, yeah, so we'll have to wait and see where, that, where that's concerned. But uh, yeah, Ferrari are putting their foot on the gas at the moment, um, so that's one to keep an eye on for later down the road as well. Um, 
Moving on from Formula One, really, and that's going over to two wheels now for MotoGP. And uh, by God, um, unfortunately, we got another problem. King didn't see the MotoGP race in Argentina, but he saw everything else. <laughs> you hipster! Wow. Yeah. Um, so I have to kind of fill in the blanks on the, during the MotoGP race, and this was, it's also going to kind of be like a preview for what King missed out on. So you better be watching this right after the stream ends, yeah? <laughs> yeah, I'll definitely get it down. <laughs> Yeah, good man. Um, but yeah, we'll talk about I don't know, two and three in a little bit as well. But yeah, the main race was very intriguing, and that's mostly down to the fact we actually had two competitive different tyres for this weekend. There was the hard compound tyre, the red-rimmed tyre, which, of course, Bridgestone totally didn't copy Pirelli on this one um, so, um, in Formula 1. But they, they have the red-rimmed hard compound tyre, and for the first time, Bridgestone brought down the extra-hard yellow-rimmed tyre as well. And there was a lot of talk as, a, as opposed to which tyre would work best during the race. And the pro- okay, here's the story. The Yamahas brought the extra-hard tyres, extra-hard rear tyre for, the, for, the, for Rossi and Lorenzo's bike. The problem with that was that the Crutchlow, the Ducatis, and Mark Marquez were all on the harder, or I was to say the softer, hard compound tyre. That's going to get really confusing after a while. Yeah. <laughs> But um, they like so basically Marquez was on the softer of the two rear tires, the hard compound red rim tire. As the race took part, Marquez broke off a four second advantage in the first half of the race. Um, obviously, being way faster than Crutchlow, that got a really good start, and got into second place. Um, but as the second half of the race went on. Rossi had got through the field from 8th place on the grid, was into 2nd, and was leading the pack of him, Dovi, Crutchlow, and Iannone to, in a, to, to basically gun down Marquez's advantage because he'd gone too hard on the hard, on the, on the hard, rid, hard rim tyre. Um, and the tyre was wearing out at a rate of about 4 tenths a lap, basically. So it was an incredibly tense race as Rossi was literally gunning down Marquez lap after lap. With two laps to go, Rossi puts a move on the hairpin to pass Marquez. Marquez, out of desperation, tries to go around the outside of the following left-hander. His front wheel hits the back of Valentino Rossi's rear tyre, and next thing you know, Marquez is down. No points for you. <laughs> so, Rossi takes a very easy win ahead of Andrea De Vizioso in the end. And Crutchlow, who stole third from Andrea Iannone on the final corner <laughs> to, to get on the podium in just his third race for Honda, Crutchlow got third ahead of Iannone in fourth. Jorge Lorenzo kind of in no man's land in fifth, really, not really getting used to the, to the rear compound tyre of that Yamaha. Um, Bradley Smith in a very nice sixth place again for the Tech 3 team, beating his teammate Paul Espagaro, who finished in eighth after having to start from 18th on the grid after a really bad qualifying session, behind his own brother, Alish, <laughs> for the Suzuki team, who had qualified in second after an outstanding qualifying effort from the Suzuki team. Um, it's a shame that Alish kind of got swamped, mostly for the reason of Suzuki is about 20 horsepower down in a straight line at the moment, so they got swamped on the straights, but cornering-wise, Suzuki are right up there. So if they can find a little bit more power on that bike, maybe they can contend for something. Um, they're working on that slowly, by the way. Running on the rest of the points real quick. Scott Redding in ninth for Mark VDS, another solid performance of him, just ahead of Maverick Vinales on the second Suzuki in 10th. Danilo Petrucci in 11th place. Surprise, surprise, top open-class runner, Jack Miller oh. on, 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 on the LCR Honda, the second 
um, the second LCR Honda bike in 12th place. So a really good day at the office for the CWM LCR team as Crutchlow got on the podium and Jack was top open class runner. So well done LCR in that department. He, he was in a real scrap and just beat Hector Barbara over the line in 13th place for Avintia. Then, then ahead of the two um, Athena forward racing bikes in 14th and 15th, Loris Baz beating his teammate Stefan Bradl over the line for 14th and 15th place. So yeah, a lot of controversy where that's concerned. I would, I'm not going to talk about it in too much detail because I'm just going to tell you, listen to Bike Live from last week from Downforce Radio if you want my full thoughts on the Marquez Rossi incident. For, for, for me, racing incident... Two guys going half of the win. It's gonna. It's inevitable. Someone was gonna lose out in that one. Marquez is not wired to finish in second. He's just not that kind of dude. So, you know, one of those things. But uh, as it stands at the moment, Valentina Rossi is still leading the world championship by six points over Andrea Davizioso in second. Mark Marquez already thirty points behind the doctor. That's a lot of ground to make up. Yeah, can't, can't rub that off in a race or two. Yep, moving on to Moto2, and it was a, a kind of an overdue win, really. We saw the race itself on this one, King. It was a, it was a, it was a first win for Johan Zarco. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I see you've, you've come fully prepared for this. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it was Johan Zarco. Like, go on, go on. I mean, it's like, I, obviously I don't follow MotoGP as closely as you do, so pretty much when the race is over, I literally just watch the race. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, oh, I'm just going to watch this race and, you know, wait for Dre's reaction to it. Um, but yeah, it, it was, it was Johan Zarko that took, that took a, uh, very straightforward win, really. Um, broke off from the opening pack in the early going and didn't really look back from there. It, it was, a, it was the second pack that was trying to give chase, led by Sam Lowe's, Xavier Simeon, um, and Alex Rins. Problem was Simeon hit the deck again for the, for the second consecutive race. So Simeon, who's been who's at second place and has been competitive in all three rounds so far, only has twenty points to show for it. Whoops, um, <laughs> big whoops, big whoops. Um, yeah, so Simeon down again with seven laps to go in that race, and Sam Lowe's was was comfortable in second place. He had Alex Rins gunning him down from behind, and then. Sam Lowe's let Alex Rins through. He did not fight him, and he said it was for trying to protect the championship by basically not risking it by getting into a scrap with with, with Alex Rins. Basically, was now I wonder was Sam Lowe's being soft on this one, King? No, because it could come. It literally could come down to that. It literally could come down to a handful of points that you've lost because you fought somebody for a number of laps. Did not only did you lose the position battling. But you also lose the position of someone capitalizing on you destroying your tires. This is true. I mean, for me, I feel like every point counts. And I think every point is worth fighting for. Because, again, if it comes down to that, maybe the extra push... It works both ways. You know, being conservative could work this way. Because, you know, it might be full points potentially saved. You know, instead of dropping off the bike. And this is Sam Lowe's we're talking about here. This is a guy that's had a bad reputation of hitting the deck many a time during Grand Prix weekends. And... Maybe Sam Lowe's is thinking about the bigger picture with that in mind by taking a four-point penalty to essentially make sure he takes an easy third as opposed to a potentially risky second. 
Um, maybe four points is not that big a deal at the moment. We'll have to wait and see if, if that comes back to bite him down the road. But yeah, Sam Lowe's basically took, took, took the safe option in third, which given what happened to Marquez, I guess kind of highlights <laughs> the difference in attitude there, really. More than anything else, it's kind of polarizing seeing that happen. Um, running down the rest of the field real quick, Mika Calio in fourth for the Italians team. Um, it was surprising to see Mika Calio back up there again, which was nice to see. Calio in fourth, his Italians teammate Franco Morbidelli in fifth, Thomas Luti for the Interwetten team in, in sixth, Sandro Cortese seventh, Lorenzo Baldassari in eighth, um, Jonas Volgo stole two places on the final lap by setting the fastest lap of the Grand Prix on the last lap in ninth place. Uh, Hafi Sirin in tenth, Salom eleventh, Tito Rabat the champion in twelfth after getting budged out on, on on the opening lap and having to run on the grass. Um, fell to the back of the field, had to fight his way back to finish in twelfth place. So Rabat, Rabat's miserable season is kind of continuing at the moment. He's just, he's not having it go his way at the moment at all for the Mark VDS team. Dominique Agata in 13th place. Anthony West on the second speed up in 14th. And his teammate, for Rabat's teammate, I should say, for the other Mark VDS by Alex Marquez just getting a, just the one point in 15th spot. It's, it's kind of alarming, King, seeing the differences between Marquez and Rins given last year. Marquez was, was the reigning champion, and all of a sudden, Rins is the one that's adapting really quick. Yeah, I mean, uh, as much as you like to say, or Moto2 is obviously a step up from Moto3, and it, things can get complicated. Like, uh, sometimes different bikes suit different riders. Yeah, and yeah, you know, obviously, Moto2 to Moto3 is essentially, you know, there's a big difference. There's a there is a big level in 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 essentially you know bike terms in terms of performance. Like let's say yeah, Moto three bikes have about eighty horsepower, Moto two bikes have about one hundred and forty, and the bikes are much bigger as well. That's, that's the biggest visually. They're huge compared to a Moto three bike. Um, yeah, the, their Moto two bikes are a lot bigger, and you know it's just strange because well, given that Alex Marquez is is quite a bigger guy for a rider in the sense of. Like he towers over his over his brother Mark, for example. Um, he's way bigger than him, and he's still he's just not been able to make it work so far. Whereas Alex Rins, who was third in the said championship last year and was quite scrappy last year, is fit like a glove and is already looking like a top title contender. I mean, look at the, look at the, the, the uh, league table right now. Johan Zaka has a four point lead with fifty three over Alex Rins in second with forty nine. Um, Sam Lowe's in third with 41, and then Franco Morbidelli in fourth with 33. Um, he's finished in fifth place all three races so far, Morbidelli. So how's that, how's that for consistency? Um, so yeah, Morbidelli is, a, is, a, is, a, is a three straight fifth place finishes. So yeah, that's the championship as it stands right now. And yeah, Rins, I mean, it is Harev this weekend. So you never know, right? Rins finished yeah, fourth. He finished fourth in Qatar, third in America, second in Argentina. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> you never know, right? Um, so, that's a thing. Moving on to Moto3 real quick. Yeah, Danny Kent. Again, another dominant win for the Leopard Racing Team. Even by an even bigger m- margin of victory. This was a 10.3 second win for Danny Kent over Efren Vasquez and his, his teammate in second place. Another astonishing performance, King. 
Yeah, margins of victory of that skill don't come often in yeah. Moto3. In any form of bike racing, it just doesn't happen. You don't win races by 10 seconds. The machinery is just too close for that to ever be a thing. Rider talent is not that prevalent where it's like, oh, you're going to get like you're half a second a lap faster than everybody else. That just doesn't happen <laughs> in, term, in terms of bike racing. Even if, you know, bikes are stronger or weaker or whatnot, it's just... One of those things that you, it just doesn't happen. And two races in a row now, Danny Kent has destroyed the field. Destroyed it. You know, f- that that was a 10.3 second win over Efren Vasquez, who was in a real scrap um, for second. All the way down from second, I would say, to 15th place John McPhee, covered by about two seconds, um, as they were all dicing for the minor spots. And once again, Danny Kent just takes off into the distance. Like No one's got an answer for him at the moment. It's, it's astonishing. It's like the ghost of James Toseland has taken over the 52. It's it, it's like, it's it's either Kent has something extremely special, or like something sketchy is going on. It's weird, because he was never like this last year. Maybe because now he's on the top Honda package, as he wasn't last year. He was with a... His Vera um, KTM package, which was, you know, the second tier KTM package, basically. Not like the same that Jack Miller was on last year, for example. And the other Red Bull KTMs. Um, it was a weaker package, basically. But hey, it, it didn't stop Isaac Vinales from coming in third in this Grand Prix. So I don't know what's going on, <laughs> really. Um, I, I, don't, I do not understand where this speed has come from with Danny Kent. I really don't. Um, but I'm not questioning it. Yay, Danny. Um... Average speed-wise, he was 0.7 kilometers for a lap faster than everybody else, which is just huge. Um, so, yeah, running down the rest of the field, Vasquez second, Isaac Vignal, as, as I said, on that, Esquivera, uh, KTM in third, Miguel Oliveira finally getting some points on the board after two drops in the opening rounds. Um, in fourth place, has got some points to his name. Brad Binder in fifth, is his Red Bull KTM teammate in fifth, just ahead of Fabio Quattararo. Happy birthday, Fabio. Just turned 16 on sh- um, last Saturday um, in, <laughs> in sixth place. God, I feel so old. Um, um, with Carol Hanneker in seventh, the Red Bull Rookies champion from last year. Romano Fanati in eighth after starting from the back for... And did you see this story, King? <laughs> No, I didn't see the story. Fanati kicking a rival in warm-up practice. Oh, okay, yeah, I saw that story. <laughs> yep, he kicked Nicky Ayo's bike um, on the side pod in anger, and when they were lining up for a practice start, uh, Fanati reached over and switched his bike off. <laughs> Which, in, in an act of sheer handbags and petulance. <laughs> oh, like, like, at first, I heard the story, and the, I, heard the, I heard the stories, Fanati kicked his bike, and it shut off. No, it wasn't that. It was it, the bike was still going when they lined up for a practice start. Um, afterwards, essentially, what happened after that was that they stopped. They they argued some more. Words were exchanged, and then I, Fanati reached over and switched Io's bike off. As a result, Fanati's um, qualifying time was disqualified, and he was given three penalty points on his license as a result of it. One more 
um, in, in the next calendar year, and Fanati will have to start a race from the back. Didn't seem to bother him too bad because he's still finishing eighth, despite being at the back of the field. Um, so yeah, so yeah, a quite uh, fruity race for Romano Fanati, but that's concerned. Uh, just ahead of Enna Bastianini in ninth for the Grassini team. Nicky Io, the guy whose bike he switched off, was in tenth. So what does that say about Nicky Io when the guy from the back still beat him? Um, yeah. Not a good day at the weekend for um, for Io and the RBA KTM team there. Francesco Bagnaia in eleventh place for Mahindra. Um, Livio Loy in twelfth, a bit of an Argentina specialist in twelfth place. Hiroki Ono, the third Leopard racing bike in 13th ahead of Jakob Kornfile in 14th and the last of the points going to John McPhee in 15th place. Quick run up of the championship as it stands as I up on my screen right here. Danny Kent leads the championship by 17 points already over his teammate Efren Vasquez in second. Enna Bastianini third with 40 points and the kid Fabio Quattararo in fourth with 39. So the 16-year-old is keeping himself relevant in there. And by the way, Harev is his strongest track next this weekend. Keep an eye on the Frenchman. He could steal a win. You heard it here first. Um, you're welcome. Uh, so yeah, that's enough of MotoGP for the weekend. More from that on Bike Live this Friday on Downforce Radio. You can check that out if you get an opportunity. Uh, hopefully you'll enjoy that with me, Lewis Sudderby, and Rebecca James. Um, so how's the pom-poms for Team Bex going, King? There have been better days. There have been better days. And why is that, King? Oh, well, you know, the previous episode of Bike Live. <laughs> what? Oh, what, what got that? Oh, I mean, I have no idea why that could ever possibly be a thing. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, hooray for that. Um, <laughs> moving on to uh, King's specialty, IndyCar, everybody. Um, and we've had two Grand Prix go by since our last podcast. We had the, we had the Grand Prix of Long Beach, won by Scott Dixon. We'll talk about that in just a second. And the second race um, from this past weekend at the Barber Motorsport Park for the Honda Grand Prix of Alabama, won by... Hey, hey, hey we, have a, we have a new winner in IndyCar as Joseph Newgarden got his very first IndyCar win, King. Yeah, the improbable Joseph Newgarden was able to take down the big boys and get his first win. Yeah, it's amazing as well, considering that, you know, everyone and their mother knows that the Penske team is obviously ridiculously strong and probably the best, you know, not probably, is the best team in IndyCar. There's no doubt about that, really. Um, the, uh, the super-powered team of Will Power, Helio Castroneves, Juan Pablo Montoya, and Simon Pagano, um, you know, beasts in their own right. And Newgarden's pace was competitive all race long. He had a really good qualifying session. He put it in, the, in on the second row, you know, beat Will Power on lap one, and kept himself up there. And when, when Helio had a bad pit stop, Newgarden was off. <laughs> yeah, Newgarden was off, and it seemed like there were only two threats to him at the end of the race. It was... Scott Dixon, and of all people, Graham Rahal. <laughs> Graham Rahal, who had got it on the nose strategy-wise, you know, using the cautions to great effect. Um, him and Hinchcliffe really benefited from the from, you know, use of the caution flags and you know, conveniently timed pit stops, and Hinchcliffe ended up finishing in seventh as a result of that. And obviously Rahal, who came in second, was rampaging towards the end of that Grand Prix on fresh red red tyres as well as having more than enough fuel to be to be at full power for the rest of the race and, you know, 
pulled off a brilliant outside pass on Scott Dixon that probably came just a little bit too late, really, unfortunately, because as a result of the, the time taken to pass Dixon, he was kind of rolled of a chance of going off the New Garden. Yeah, and it was... Seeing Graham's pace was ridiculous. The moment he got around Dixon, it seemed like he got two seconds on him. Yeah, it was it was astonishing. Um, I was amazed at how at how great the pace was, and you know, what can I say? It was just 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 incredible. Um, I, I, I was able um, to just just to reel him in at a rate of knots, um, and yeah, nearly stealing the win at the end there. But yeah, a first class win for. Uh, for Joseph Newgarden, there, one of the much hyped about uh, stars of IndyCar, younger stars of IndyCar, and you know, I, I heard a lot of rumours about him possibly be going to that Haas Formula One team if that becomes a thing next year. Um, do you reckon Newgarden could get that one of those two seats? Uh, yeah, he at this current his current position, championship says he would be eligible for a super license, and they are looking for a young American. He's certainly within the age range to have. Yet still have a Formula One career, so I wouldn't say it would be completely out of left field, but I would say it depends on how well Alexander Rossi does in GP2 this year. Yeah, because this is only um, Alexander Rossi's second full season in GP2. You know, he's been in and out of that of that class for a little while now, and this is his first, I think, full season. So I think it's 2012. I want to say. Um, yeah. Um, and you know, he had a very good first weekend for the racing engineering team over there on a, on a tangent firm over in Bahrain for GP2. I think he was third in the feature race and fourth in the sprint race. Um, so a good opening weekend for Rossi. So if he can keep himself in that kind of ballpark, then you know, why not? You know, go back under Rossi. He's got a ton of European racing experience under his belt. Yeah, and I mean, I, I like this. I like to see this, that we have two drivers in two different series clearly competing for the same seat. Yeah, crazy that, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and then we're like young Connor Daly either, because um, that, that could still easily be a thing as well if Connor can get some work between now and the start of the season, because he's been on that European ladder for years. Again, big big GP2 experience there. Race winner. He was third in the championship a few years ago, Connor Daly, so that's another one you want to rule out as well. Um, I know the talks, there's all talk about John Eric Verne. I've heard, I mean, I mean, Adam Johnson, a, friend, a big friend of the show, and the host probably listening, so hi, Adam. He was talking to me about the possibility of Hinchcliffe, and I'm like, mm, probably not. He's 28 and Canadian. Um, Robert Ryan Hunter Ray as well, but he's 34, and, you know, it's probably a bit too old for that now, and, you know, there's a lot of names flying around, but that's concerned. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was a great IndyCar race uh, overall, and I definitely say go out of your way to check it out if you if you haven't already. If, even, even if you're new to this series, IndyCar, don't do the whole copyright thing. Yay, IndyCar, we like you for that. Um, so the whole race probably is on YouTube by now, so if you haven't seen it, give it a look. Um, I enjoyed it. I think it was better than any Formula 1 race we've seen so far this season. So I, I, I really enjoyed it. So um, This is coming from me, a new IndyCar viewer. So I thought, I thought that was a great race. Go check it out if you haven't already. Um, you might want to skip Long Beach, though, because Long Beach was kind of boring, really. Unfortunately. Yeah, but I mean, there are a lot of probably the two biggest races on the IndyCar calendar coming up. Yep, Indy's, Indy's Road Course, and then, of course, the 500, both coming up in May. Yeah, Connor Daly got his race seat, so... Yeah! The Motorsport 101 Fantasy Dream Team is coming together. 
Um, yep. So, yeah, as you've had the news already, Connor Daly is confirmed for the Indy 500 alongside James Hinchcliffe. So, hooray us. I called it. This was a thing. <laughs> you called it. It's like, yeah, it was announced that he would be driving at Peterson Smith alongside James Hinchcliffe and James Jakes, who most notably in the first race of the season got taken out by Simone Di Silvestro, who will also be racing in the Indianapolis 500. Let's hope that isn't a thing during the actual Indy 500, otherwise disaster could strike. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, hopefully that isn't a thing. But, yeah, congr- obviously, we're huge Conor Daly fans on this show, and Conor Daly is a great guy and, you know, very you know, great character, a lot of charisma, isn't afraid to speak his mind. Um, and a hard grafter. He's been going in and around all over the world trying to get work, and... A guy that talented, because he had a great performance in Long Beach. I think everybody in IndyCar was impressed with his performance at Long Beach. Didn't make any mistakes. Gained seven places on where he started. Finished in 17th place. Um, given he's had no Long Beach experience in the car before. And just thrown in at the last minute after an injury. So he had to come in pretty much just before qualifying. Did not get a lot of time in. And he gained six places. I mean, you can't ask for much more than that, Connor. <laughs> Yeah, you can't, you can't ask for more. And he always seems to get the job done. Yep, he just does. And just, yeah, just a, just a brilliant performance from Connor. And we all, we're, we're all very proud of him here on this podcast. So, Connor, congratulations, my man. Um, and obviously, please kill it in the 500. You know, that'd be amazing. Hopefully that can put himself in the shop window for a full time seat because the guy is good. He clearly is yeah. good. He just needs a chance. And that's all it that, takes. That's- that's that's the stage he needs. The the biggest event on the calendar, his hometown race. Yeah, he needs to get it done. Yep, yeah, obviously he's an indie man himself, so and I'm sure Indy will get behind their hometown boy. So yeah, good luck, Connor, with that in May. And again, it's the perfect chance for him to get himself in the shot window. So obviously, I just want to wish Connor well and Pippa Man as well because she's going to be down there. We're huge fans of her as well. She was on Downforce Radio last weekend and she was fantastic on there as well. So. Good luck, Pippa. I was racing for the Susan G. Coden Cancer Foundation as well, which is fantastic. Um, yeah. So definitely worth a mention as well. But yeah, I wouldn't check out Long Beach. Kind of boring. Helio got screwed in the pits, and that allowed Dixon to get to get a pretty straightforward win. Uh, Montoya pulled off a pretty ballsy pass on, on down the back straight on uh, Pagano, and Pagano did not have an answer for him really. Unfortunately, where that was concerned, but that was kind of like a catfish really. Like I was, I was hoping for a Penske scrap, and we didn't really get one, unfortunately. Boo. <laughs> Civil War! Civil War! Civil War. I mean, but Ganassi has shown their hand, and they're clearly not that far behind Penske. Yeah, which is good. This is great to see. Great to see that Chip Ganassi are, 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 you know, close and competitive. So, you know, it's good to see that they, that they, that they're able to mix it up with the, uh, the Penske superpowers that be, basically. Like, I've already learned from about IndyCar. There's one thing I've learned already is that, you know, everybody against the Penskes. So, you know. <laughs> Uh, I, I am more than down for some giant killing. Let's go, Sebastian Borne! <laughs> well, the ovals are coming, and usually the oval is the great equalizer. Yep, so here's hoping that is a thing. Yeah, we're done, King, already. <laughs> Who'd have thought? <laughs> like, like, we keep hyping ourselves up, this is going to be a really long show, but this is, again, only an hour 18 or so. So, yeah, I'm very impressed with that one. Anything else you want to get out there real quick before we go? Uh... As I said during the opening of the episode, I'm working on a new article that should be up tomorrow. Also tomorrow, an episode of The Finish Line, which I'm pretty sure the key topic about that during the end of the, the episode, we talk about who's gonna beat, who's gonna beat Ericsson Senna's 
win total first. Ooh. Lewis Hamilton or Sebastian Vettel? Vettel's only one win away. Hamilton's five win, wins back. Who gets there first? That's going to be an interesting discussion. Check them out already. If you haven't already on iTunes, check out the finish line. Friends of the show um, and whatnot as well. For me... Not much to really report, to be honest. It's, 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 it's going to be a little bit of a quiet week for me because of you know I'm burying my head in uni assignments for the next week or so. But obviously, stay tuned on Twitter, on Facebook, and whatnot. Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already on iTunes. If you, and if you really like the show, why not leave, give us a nice rating and give us a review? That would be really nice. It would really help to support the show and whatnot. But as always, thanks to me and King. Thank, uh, thanks to King for being on the part of the show. Thanks to everyone else out there for listening. And we'll catch you guys next time. Sign out. Bye.